Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. This lecture will cover acromioclavicular joint injuries and glenohumeral arthritis, both common disease processes and commonly found on examinations. Let's get started. First, let's review the AC joint anatomy. The AC joint is a diarthrodial joint stabilized by both acromioclavicular ligaments and coracoclavicular ligaments. The AC ligaments provide the primary restraint to horizontal stability with the superior and posterior components providing the majority of the stabilization. The coracoclavicular ligaments are made up of the conoid and trapezoid. What is the anatomic relationship between the conoid, trapezoid, and the distal clavicle? The conoid is medial to the trapezoid. I remember this as alphabetically as C before T from proximal to distal anatomically. C comes before T. The conoid inserts 4.5 centimeters from the distal clavicle, while the trapezoid inserts 3 centimeters from the distal clavicle. Injuries to the AC joint occur quite frequently, particularly in males, either after a direct blow to the shoulder or falling onto the shoulder. Patients present complaining of pain, particularly with forward elevation or adduction localized to the AC joint. On physical exam, they may be tender directly over the joint, may have a prominence that is asymmetric with the uninjured side. It is also important to assess for any skin tenting, which may place the overlying soft tissue at risk for pressure necrosis. Plain radiographs are utilized both to diagnose and classify these injuries. What is the name of the most accurate radiographic view to diagnose AC joint separation and how is it performed? It is called the Zonka view. It is shot by tilting the beam 10 degrees cephalad and using a 50% exposure strength. How can you remember that name, Zonka? In 1972, the Miami Dolphins' perfect season team had a running back, Hall of Famer Larry Zonka. And yes, it is spelled differently. But you can bet that a running back in the NFL likely sustained an AC joint injury at some point in his career. So there you go, Larry Zonka, the Zonka view for AC joint injuries. Bilateral views are needed so that you can measure the distance from the bottom of the clavicle to the top of the coracoid, both on the injured and uninjured side. This will be useful when classifying the type of separation. Finally, why is an axillary view important? It allows you to diagnose a type 4 injury, which we will talk about shortly. So let's talk about the Rockwood classification system. This classification system helps us to guide our treatment decisions. A type 1 sprain is non-displaced and presents as tenderness over the AC joint. Type 2 injuries, the AC ligaments are disrupted, however the coracoclavicular ligaments remain intact, and there will be less than a 25% increase in the coracoclavicular distance. Remember that measuring these distance needs to be done against the contralateral uninjured extremity. These first two types of injuries are treated conservatively with rest, possibly in a sling, until the patient is asymptomatic, which typically occurs around three weeks. Early range of motion should be stressed and the patient will generally return to full activity between 8 and 12 weeks. In a type 3 injury, both the acromioclavicular and coracoclavicular have been torn and the coracoclavicular distance will have increased between 25 and 100% in comparison to the contralateral extremity. Type 3 injury treatment is controversial, however most surgeons tend to treat this injury conservatively. A recent systematic review has shown equivalent outcomes between surgery and conservative treatment. However, the surgical group has a higher complication rate and a longer return to work or sport. Let's skip now to a type 5 injury. 
in which again both the acromioclavicular and coracoclavicular ligaments have been disrupted, only now the coracoclavicular distance is greater than 100% of the uninjured side. Generally, in this injury, the distal clavicle has buttonholed through the deltotrapezial fascia, preventing reduction. These are treated with surgery. In a type 4 injury, the distal clavicle displaces posteriorly through the trapezius, again preventing reduction. On an AP radiograph, this may appear reduced. However, on the axillary radiograph we mentioned, you will see the distal clavicle posterior to the acromion. These also are treated surgically. And finally, the incredibly rare type 6 injury, the distal clavicle displaces either into a subcoracoid or a subacromial position. These also require surgery for reduction. There are multiple options when it comes to surgical fixation, including a coracoclavicular screw, suture fixation, hook plates, transfer of the coracoacromial ligament to the distal clavicle, also known as a modified Weaver-Dunn, and coracoclavicular ligament reconstruction with a tendon graft. Biomechanical analysis has shown that the Weaver-Dunn procedure is only about 20% as strong as the native coracoclavicular ligament. Historically, pins or smooth wires were placed across the AC joint to hold it in a reduced position. However, these pins tended to migrate even into the aorta, so this is no longer done. Our technique has been to pass both graft and suture tape around the coracoid through holes created in the distal clavicle at the area of the conoid and trapezoid insertions in an attempt to reconstruct those ligaments. Let's move on now to distal clavicle osteolysis. This is defined as osteopenia caused by repetitive microtrauma in the distal clavicle frequently seen in weightlifters. Quick review. In what age does the medial clavicle ossify? 25 years of age. Okay, distal clavicle osteolysis presents with pain and tenderness at the distal clavicle. Plain radiographs will show osteopenia and possibly some cyst formation. First-line treatment includes activity modification, anti-inflammatories, and possible corticosteroid injections. Many athletes will refuse to give up weightlifting, and therefore they may fail conservative therapy. The surgical procedure for this is a distal clavicle excision. This can be done either open or arthroscopically. If done arthroscopically, it is important to resect one centimeter or less of the distal clavicle. Remember that the trapezoid ligament, the most lateral of the coracoclavicular ligaments, inserts three centimeters medial to the end of the clavicle. An inadvertent resection of these ligaments may destabilize the acromioclavicular joint. Furthermore, care must be taken not to violate the superior or posterior acromioclavicular ligaments as this can lead to horizontal instability. If an open procedure is done, these must be repaired or preserved. Let's move on now to AC joint arthritis. This can occur at any age and frequently presents after a history of trauma either from a prior AC separation or a distal clavicle fracture with intraarticular involvement. This is especially prevalent in athletes participating in overhead activities such as throwers and weightlifters. These patients again present with pain localized to the AC joint, particularly with overhead activity. Physical exam will show tenderness directly over the AC joint and pain with cross-body adduction test. Again, what is the name for the most accurate radiographic test to evaluate for pathology in the AC joint? The Zonka test. Radiographs will show osteophytes in the joint space, narrowing, and possibly osteopenia. So how do we treat these patients? Conservative therapy is warranted as a first-line treatment with anti-inflammatories, rest, and activity modification. Some patients may benefit from an intraarticular AC joint injection, which may be both diagnostic and therapeutic when ruling out any other pain generators around the shoulder. 
For patients with pain that is refractory to conservative measures, operative treatment may be considered. Again, the distal clavicle excision is a procedure of choice, and this may be done either open or arthroscopically. Equivalent results have been demonstrated with both techniques. However, arthroscopic treatment also allows for the evaluation of any glenohumeral pathology and to evaluate the subacromial space. As mentioned previously, it is critically important to resect one centimeter or less of the distal clavicle so the AC joint does not become destabilized. Okay, let's move on now to the second part of the talk, which is glenohumeral arthritis. For the purposes of this section of the talk, we will focus mainly on primary osteoarthritis of the glenohumeral joint. However, we will also touch on arthritis from inflammatory systemic illnesses such as rheumatoid arthritis and touch briefly on rotator cuff arthropathy. Let's go over some osseous anatomy for a quick review. If you're looking at the humerus from above, you'll see that the humeral head is retroverted 30 degrees from the epicondylar axis of the distal humerus. The humeral head is also inclined 130 degrees from the humeral shaft. The glenoid is tilted up approximately 5 degrees. There is also a significant amount of variation in the version of the glenoid. It averages approximately 5 degrees of retroversion in relation to the scapular plane. Alright, so primary osteoarthritis is typically a disease process found in the dominant arm in the elderly population. Interestingly enough, and by interesting I mean testable, is the fact that rotator cuff tears are relatively rare in patients with primary osteoarthritis, existing in only about 5-10% to of patients. This is important when we consider treatment options later on. Patients with inflammatory arthritis, however, tend to commonly present with rotator cuff tears in approximately 25-50% to of patients. Patients with osteoarthritis of the glenohumeral joint will present commonly with a gradual onset of deep shoulder pain over an extended period of time. They will frequently complain of pain at night, pain with any activity, and crepitus with shoulder motion. Physical exam will show severe functional limitations with decreased range of motion secondary to both pain and stiffness. They may have tenderness to palpation over the anterior and posterior joint lines. Some patients may show flattening of the contour of the deltoid due to posterior subluxation of the glenohumeral joint. Rotator cuff strength testing is also important during the clinical workup to evaluate for any signs of weakness which may indicate rotator cuff arthropathy. Radiographs can give us a significant amount of information with regard to the etiology of arthritis. A full radiographic series including AP, lateral, and axillary should be obtained. How do you take a true AP of the shoulder joint? A Grachet view. It is shot at 30 degrees oblique to the coronal plane of the body. And what do we want to look for? Well, for one, the common radiographic signs of arthritis can be found including joint space narrowing, subchondral cysts, subchondral sclerosis. Arthritis in the shoulder tends to develop an osteophyte at the inferior margin of the anatomic neck known as a goat's beard osteophyte. On an AP radiograph, the position of the humeral head in relation to the glenoid should also be analyzed. Patients with rotator cuff arthropathy will show proximal migration of the humeral head, acetabulization of the acromion, and femoralization of the humeral head. In response to the proximal migration of the humeral head, there will be erosion on the superior face of the glenoid during rotator cuff arthropathy. Remember that glenoid wear patterns come up frequently on test questions. While we're on the subject of glenoid wear, where do we see most of the erosion during primary osteoarthritis? This is on the posterior aspect of the glenoid. This is the rationale for the B subtype of glenoid wear in the Walsh classification system. The extent of posterior wear of the glenoid and posterior subluxation of the humeral head in response to this wear can be analyzed on an axillary radiograph. 
And lastly, where does glenoid wear occur during an inflammatory arthropathy, such as rheumatoid arthritis? Central erosion. So central erosion can lead to medialization of the joint line and may compromise the glenoid bone stock. So again, just to repeat, rotator cuff arthropathy tends to present with superior glenoid wear. Primary osteoarthritis of the shoulder tends to present with posterior glenoid wear. And inflammatory arthropathies of the shoulder tends to present with central glenoid wear. If you are considering a reconstruction using either a total shoulder arthroplasty or a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, a CT scan may be indicated if the patient has significant glenoid bone loss or posterior wear to better help plan the glenoid fixation. Let's briefly talk about the Walsh classification system as it's both useful to know, helps plan treatment, and of course will pop up in questions from time to time. Grossly, type A shows concentric wear, type B asymmetric wear, and type C is a dysplastic glenoid. Simple as that. A bit more detail on it, type A1 is concentric, well-centered, and has minor erosions, while A2 has a deeper erosion pattern. Type B is asymmetric. It shows posterior wear, and their humeral head may have some posterior subluxation. A B1 glenoid will demonstrate posterior joint line narrowing, osteophytes, and sclerosis. B2, on the other hand, has a posterior erosion of the glenoid, leading to the development of a biconcave glenoid. The humeral head may also be posteriorly subluxed. Type C is a dysplastic glenoid. They were born with it. It shows retroversion of approximately 25 degrees or more. And again, what is normal glenoid version? About neutral to 5 degrees. So we've discussed radiographs and CT scans. Lastly, if you're worried about rotator cuff integrity or muscle atrophy, an MRI can be obtained. So how do we treat patients with glenohumeral arthritis? Well, as with any arthritic condition, the first-line treatment includes anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, and corticosteroid injections. Let's knock the obvious off as well. Rheumatoid patients should be treated with disease-modifying agents, and the use of these has significantly decreased the incidence of end-stage arthritis in these patients. Now, how about our reconstruction options? Well, they range from hemiarthroplasty to total shoulder arthroplasty, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, and fusion. Each procedure has its pluses and minuses, as well as its indications and contraindications. Hemiarthroplasty, or the original reconstructive procedure, was the treatment of choice for arthritis in the setting of a deficient rotator cuff prior to the resurgence of the reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Hemiarthroplasty can still be used in the setting of a young active laborer that would otherwise run the risk of glenoid loosening with an anatomic total shoulder. In patients with avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis, in which the humeral head is affected, but the glenoid is fine, then a hemiarthroplasty is also a good choice. Lastly, patients with a comminuted proximal humerus fracture, in which the vascularity of the head is in question or the bone quality is severely compromised, then a hemiarthroplasty may be a good solution. Some quick technical pearls. What degree of retroversion should the head be placed? 30 degrees relative to the distal humerus epicondylar axis. And how do you judge the height of the prosthesis if you're doing a hemiarthroplasty for a highly comminuted proximal humerus fracture? The top of the prosthesis should rest at approximately 56 millimeters proximal to the upper border of the pec tendon, or the greater tuberosity should be about 5 millimeters below the top of the implant. And what happens if you have a rotator cuff deficient shoulder and the coracochromial ligament is also non-functional? These patients may develop anterior superior escape. Now, how about total shoulder arthroplasty? When patients fail conservative treatment and have erosions on both the humeral head and glenoid with an intact rotator cuff, 
that an anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty is the treatment of choice. What happens if you place a glenoid component in a patient with rotator cuff arthropathy? You get loosening, and why is this? Because the dynamic stability of the rotator cuff has been lost, and the humeral head will be pulled superiorly by the deltoid with elevation of the arm. This will eccentrically load the glenoid component, causing what is known as the rocking horse phenomenon. So remember, no total shoulder arthroplasty should be done when the patient has a rotator cuff deficiency. However, if the patient has an isolated supraspinatus tear without retraction, this can be repaired at the same time as surgery with no decrease in the overall outcome. When placed in an appropriate patient with osteoarthritis in an intact cuff, total shoulder arthroplasty has been shown to have a lower revision rate in comparison to hemiarthroplasty. This is thought to stem from the glenoid resurfacing being a more reliable treatment for pain relief. Another technical consideration are patients with severe posterior bone loss leading to a retroverted glenoid. The goal is to achieve neutral glenoid version. Remember that normal version is approximately neutral to 5 degrees of retroversion. If the patient has lost a significant amount of posterior bone, the glenoid can be eccentrically reamed to remove the anterior bone, thereby correcting the version. Retroversion of less than 15 degrees can be safely corrected to neutral. However, greater retroversion cannot be corrected as it will remove too much anterior bone. Patients with greater than 15 degrees of retroversion may require allograft or posterior glenoid augmentation. Peg designs for the glenoid components are better than keeled glenoid components. Metal-backed glenoid components show a higher rate of failure than all polyethylene glenoid components. Remember that the same humeral height criteria apply in hemiarthroplasty as with total shoulder arthroplasty and that you want the implant to be 5 to 8 millimeters higher than the greater tuberosity. Because the subscapularis must be taken down during the procedure, it is important to recognize that during rehab, you must protect the repair. This is done by limiting passive external rotation and active internal rotation. If the subscapularis does fail, it needs to be fixed early. What is the most common cause of total shoulder arthroplasty failure? And that is glenoid loosening. How do you diagnose a subscapularis failure? The belly press test. What bacteria is the most common cause of chronic infection in shoulder arthroplasty? Propionobacterium acnes. And to obtain these cultures, you need to tell the microbiology lab to hold the cultures for 14 days. And what happens if you make your anatomic neck cut too low? You cut into the rotator cuff tendons, so don't do that. Let's talk briefly about reverse total shoulders. This has shown a relative resurgence in the past decade. It is the preferred treatment option in patients with rotator cuff arthropathy. It is contraindicated if the patient has deltoid dysfunction. So how does the reverse total shoulder work? It moves the center of rotation, inferior and medial, which increases the fulcrum of the deltoid and allows it to be more of an efficient elevator of the shoulder. Because it does not rely on the rotator cuff's ability to stabilize the humeral head on the glenoid, it works very well with rotator cuff dysfunction. Some indications for this are pseudoparesis, anterior superior scape, and highly comminuted proximal humerus fractures where you're worried that the tuberosities may not heal. Finally, it also works well in the setting of a failed previous arthroplasty as a revision procedure. For practical purposes, though, these should be placed in low-demand older patients typically over the age of 70. They also absolutely need to have a working axillary nerve and deltoid. If the patient has pseudoparesis and has also lost external rotation, 
What muscle may be transferred concurrently? The latissimus dorsi. It is impossible to talk about reverse total shoulder arthroplasty without bringing up scapular notching. This occurs when the medial rim of the prosthesis bangs against the scapula on adduction of the arm. Risk factors are due to glenosphere misplacement. It's either being placed too superiorly or placing it without enough inferior tilt. Glenoid loosening and dislocation are also commonly reported complications, with glenoid loosening being the most common. If the patient has an irreparable subscapularis, they also run the risk of a possible dislocation. Furthermore, a unique risk factor for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty are acromial stress fractures. One last point on a technique that's infrequently used is biologic resurfacing. The idea was to place a soft tissue graft, usually tensiofasciolata or meniscus, on the glenoid. This was done in younger patients that were at risk for loosening a prosthetic glenoid component. This has shown good short-term results in the past. However, it is not frequently used due to a high rate of revision surgery. Okay, so that concludes our lecture on AC joint pathology, AC joint arthritis, and glenohumeral arthritis. As always, please check back frequently for lecture updates. Thanks for listening.